Hello, scribes and scribblers. Welcome back to the Nib Section, the official podcast of Fountain Pens Oceania. This is Diana Dye, producer-in-chief. This episode is part of our Collector Series, which is a series of interviews done with members of the Fountain Pen community, both here and abroad. This week, the featured collector is Max, a.k.a. Crabbo Crew, a.k.a. Max Penabler, a.k.a. the owner and sole proprietor of Fountain Pen Supplies in Australia. I love talking to her, and I hope you'll enjoy this interview. This is Diana. I'm very, very glad to be talking to one of the Melbourne pen enthusiasts, Max, uh, also known as Penabler, also known as Crabbo Crew, also known as Variations of Max. Welcome to the nib section, Max. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank you so much for coming. I've wanted to talk to you for quite a while um, since you lie at the intersection of all these different little groups. And I find (laughs) your online presence, like both incredibly wonderful to follow and very, very interesting in terms of how you navigate all these different spheres. Um, So I just want to start out by saying that I'm a fan of what you do. I know you both as a long-term member of the community um, of pen enthusiasts in Australia on Facebook uh, at the Melbourne Pen, what do you call them? The men- We call ourselves the Pen Posse. The Pen Posse. <laughs> the monthly Pen Posses in Melbourne and also an exhibitor at the Melbourne Pen Show. And you're also the owner of a online store um, that's been running for, oh, I think at least four years now. There are no, actually, no? Um, it seems like a very long time, it does. but it's only been about two and a half years oh now. Oh, goodness. Really? So only a year and a half before pandemic? Yeah, basically. <laughs> well, it seems like forever. And this web store is called Fountain Pen Supplies. Great. Yes, very original, I know. But I figured, um, you know, if someone was going to Google what they needed, they'd probably put in Fountain Pen Supplies. Yes. And so and it's a, it'd make things a bit easier. It's a perfect description for what it is. Um, if you haven't looked at Max's store, I think you started out by offering pen tuning kits or um, yes. pen cleaning kits, things like that. And I thought it was so genius how targeted you were with what you were offering because for a long time for things like that those of us in Australia generally had to order from overseas often from um, the Goulet Pen Company and you would end up paying something like 30 Australian dollars for an order that was about $15. Um, yeah, like if you wanted, you know, one thing, yes. like their prices are fine, but then shipping is the killer. Right. Um, and that was the whole reason that I decided to start a, a local store was because it's not that we're underserving, mm-hmm. we're just underserved. Um, and if I could, you know, get items in in bulk, then it would be you know, easy enough for me to just do what I've done, which is set aside a closet in my house with just everything in it. Um, and it just means that, you know, if you want to buy a pair of brass shims or a micro mesh sheet, I can get that out to you for the cost of a letter instead of, you know, doing USPS waiting mm-hmm. for, well, in the before times, it was, what, two weeks um, and paying like $15 for it. But now it's just however fast AusPost happens to be at the moment for the cost of a letter, which is much better for everyone. Yes. And it's wonderful for those of us who are just 
getting started in the hobby um it's like immediate gratification you're looking you you know you're you're following all these videos about um getting a bulb syringe getting some pen flush um a brass gym so you can start your tuning and you just want to get your hands on these supplies so you can start doing it immediately and i think that's what you provide someone local who provides these very useful items that everyone really should have in their pen kit um but sometimes you just need someone to gather them all together so you can buy them all at once I mean, I'm, I'm very good at finding things. Not so much of other things, but I'm a great finder. Oh, we can so get that into just... that. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so um, let's get started since I'm also very interested in talking about your collection and your pen um, curation practices. I've talked to quite a lot of pen collectors now um, in the last several years of doing this podcast, and yours is one of the ones that are the most uh, – your collection is one of the most colourful that I've seen. And okay. I think and I think you obviously have a very good eye for color and you love color and also Japanese pens. So I do, yes. <laughs> can you run me down on uh, how long you've been collecting and what got you started? Okay, I, it was funny because when you when you mentioned that you'd be asking me this question, I thought about it and I can actually pinpoint when I got my first fountain pen. Um, it was from Kiki K in their flagship store in the city. Um, I was just having a really bad day and I thought, I'm going to buy myself a little present. I hadn't decided what or anything, but they had this little glass case where they locked all the expensive things. Um, and they had Lummy All-Stars, which, you know, not, mm-hmm. not that expensive in the grand scale of things, but um, for Kiki K was probably one of their higher mm-hmm. priced items. And it was the um, the now discontinued um, silver green with the black trim and the black nib. And that one was an interesting one because I didn't know it at the time, but um, they would discontinue that in 2008 and relaunch it with a chrome nib and trim. So it became quite coveted and I had no idea at the time. I was just like, I like that. I want that. It's mine. <laughs> that kind of started it all really. Um, what, when was that? It, Do you remember? 2008 or earlier because that's when they stopped doing them. Um, and I probably started collecting in 2017 because um, I what happened is I broke the, the section of the L-Star while I was cleaning it. Okay. So a bit too enthusiastic with pulling it apart and um, I put in the feed the wrong way and disaster. So I got in contact with Milligram, who is their note maker because they're the um, distributors, and asked if they had any spare parts. They said, we don't, but Penn City might. Um, so I went into Penn City, saw everything and just went, oh, and <laughs> you realised how deep the rabbit hole went. Yeah, like I don't think it ever even occurred to me before then that, I don't know, I definitely didn't think there was the range, but um, it just didn't occur to me that, you know, you could have more than one pen, which is silly because I've got like heaps of gel pens and, and pencils and things just for my art and taking to uni at the time. But um, once I saw all these fountain pens, I was like, oh, I sense a new obsession. <laughs> and I did. I think your journey is like a lot of us who, I think our, um, our fondness for fountain pens is just another discovery in our path of being completely obsessed with everything stationary. So, yes. um, you know, highlighters, pencils, gel pens, those pastel what do you call those energel is that what they're called I don't think they had those when I was at school well at one point at uni um we we were just talking about uh clearing out our stationary drawers and 
I got a real good bollocking from the group because I had 50 highlighters. And I was like, yeah, but they're all slightly different shades and some of them are erasable and some are glitter. It's totally normal to have 50 highlighters, right? Yeah. I cleaned out my pen um, drawer recently and there were so many felt tips and gel tips that I've had for so long and I've just hoarded. I don't even know if they work anymore. And I felt like it was so wasteful to throw them out, but I knew that I would never get around to using them. So I'm still trying to decide what to do with them. How do I uh, Marie Kondo I that? that? <laughs> what I did was I just got them all out, dumped them in a pile on my table, got a just a crappy old notebook and literally just wrote a line with all of them. Mm-hmm. It didn't work. Um, I disassembled it and put it in the recycling in the bin. Um, it did work, mm-hmm. but I didn't, you know, like it or I thought oh, it's just an average pen um I stuck it in a bag and dropped it off at my local uh we have savers stores locally I don't know if they're all around Australia but um it's basically just like an op shop superstore and they often you know put together little uh packs for um disadvantaged kids just you know for start of school years just like notepads uh pens they were just so they have something if they need it and it's you know like a dollar for a bag of these or something. So I just, you know, pull the ones that worked that I didn't want into a bag and dropped it off there. That's a great idea. Yeah, I'll have to do something like that because it's – I must have about 50, 60 pens and that's not something you want going into landfill. I know, right? And some of it you don't really know if it can be recycled. So um, a lot of it just does end up in landfill, mm. which is a great thing about fountain pens because they're so reusable. Exactly. And even when you buy ink, you know that those glass bottles are recyclable. Yeah. So talking about your collection, you've been collecting now for about almost three years. What is the current yeah. size of your pen collection? Okay, I actually did the math on this. Uh, I currently have 19 pens in my possession and two en route, uh, and I'm borrowing one from a friend at the moment. So I think 21? Yeah, about, about 20, 21 pens. And do the, does that include the original Lamior style? No, I moved that one on um, a couple of years back now to Kevin, our, ah, our dear Lamy friend. Yes. <laughs> Uh, Kevin Yank, who is a Lamy collector. Oh, he must have loved the fact that that one was a special or a limited edition. Yeah, I mean, I didn't know until I was um, selling it and I, I saw some of these things and I'm kind of like, people want that mm-hmm. much for an old stuff? No way. This cost me like $50 at most. So a lot of the time when I on sell, I try to keep the price as low as possible just because, I don't know, I, I don't like when you see people selling like bottles of Lamy Dark Lilac love that stuff I don't a hundred dollars a bottle love it (laughs) and it's just kind of like don't be like that (laughs) what are the breakdown of the brands that you like to collect are they mostly Japanese they are almost all Japanese the one that I've borrowed is um a Mont Blanc so that's my my German pen in the lot I have uh two custom-made pens um from custom makers tailor-made pens uh, sorry, Tailored Pen Company and another one from Woodshed Pen Co. They did oh. a Kickstarter to fund a new lathe. So I've got those two customs and the rest are Japanese. And of those, most of them are Pilot or Namiki. wasn't intentional, but it just ended out that way because I love their nibs. And um, speaking of one question that I, we ask everyone on the podcast, what is the pen that you're writing with today? Oh, today I am writing with under Alfie's butt. Much, <laughs> much appreciated. Thank you, Alfie. I am writing with the 70th anniversary <gasps> Pokey pen 
from um, Yotsuba, a uh, collaboration with Pilot um, based on the 100th anniversary body. Hasn't got a clip, it's got a little ring top. It's just the smoothest nib. Oh, love it. Uh, I remember when you posted um, your, un- was it an unboxing or just the reveal? Yes, it was my first ever <laughs> unboxing video. On Instagram. And the colour is spectacular. It's this dark, almost aubergine purple black it is it's so hard to capture in your camera it almost looks like black so I think I have to tell everyone that this pen is gorgeous it's in a very vintage style and um it's got this tassel coming out of the out of the uh was an addition by me um, I see I remember it had a ring at the top I don't remember it does have a ring top and I was just looking at it like it needs a tassel so I just I found um a a eBay seller selling um, silk tassels and I'm like, oh, I'll get a gold one. And I know it's super extra of me to buy a silk tassel oh, it looks for my fountain pen. <laughs> but, you know, it's a beautiful pen. It needs a beautiful addition. It does look beautiful. And I'm sure it actually uh, stops you sometimes from maybe dropping it or... Um... It does. I have dropped it <laughs> once since getting the tassel and I caught it by the tassel. Exactly. So I was like, yes, good investment <laughs> right there. Because I have to say sometimes when I'm... When I, okay, the pen I'm using today is a new arrival. Um, it was a Nakaya that I ordered back in January, but it was out of stock. So um, Nagasawa Umeda had to order it again from Nakaya directly. And it's a Piccolo model with Raden Gold Dust and Urushi called Shake Sonsetsu, I believe. Um, and it's beautiful. I I think it's gorgeous. And um, I have to say, when I arrived yesterday, I was taking photos of it in the garden and I dropped it. <laughs> I dropped oh, it. Did you have a heart attack? I, did. I think I would just die I on did. the spot. <laughs> I didn't even get the chance to take the photo first. I just dropped it. It fell on some pebbles. Um, luckily, it hasn't cracked or anything. Um, the Arushi seems to be undamaged, luckily. Uh, touch wood, touch wood. keep it that way <laughs> but it's those occasions when I wish it had like a tassel or a string or something so that you know I can catch it maybe if it just yeah, slips on my head we're actually feeling very um pen safety oriented that's what exactly we're absolutely so that's what I'm writing with today and um, my pen is inked with Kyo Iro's cherry blossoms of Kiage oh love that one yeah, it's a it's a very muted but lovely grayed pink. Um, very different to a lot of the Sakura inks that the other Japanese brands tend to come out with. You know, like yeah, Sakura they tend Mori. To be a lot um, more pastely and and bright. Whereas I don't know, I just think of um, Kyo Iro's Cherry Blossom as like a, a very mature sort of. You know, like a grand dame as far as the securities go. <laughs> yes. So back to your collection. Would you say that your 80th anniversary, is that what it is? The 80th anniversary. Uh, 70th oh, anniversary. Sorry, the 70th anniversary, that pen collaboration with Pilot, is that the most trouble or effort that you've gone to for a pen so far? Or is it something else? I would say that the most trouble and effort I've gone to acquire a pen um was not so much directly uh, a result of um, getting the pen, but it did certainly help, was I learned to read Hanzi and Kanji, which is very extra if you think of it just as I learned to read a new language because I wanted a pen. Um, 
but it was more that I wanted to connect with um you know, pen collectors and enthusiasts on Weibo, the uh, Chinese social media site, um, as well as look on places like Yahoo Auctions and just, you know, international Twitter. And obviously you cannot expect everybody to, you know, communicate with you in English and English is a stupid language even if you speak it as a first language. So, yeah, I, I do a very poor job of communicating in um, other languages and there's a lot of Google Translate going on there. But, um through that, um, somebody I was speaking to on Weibo was um, mentioning that they were going to sell some of their collection. And so I just very cheekily said, oh, you're not including this pen, are you? And they said, actually, I am. It's going for this much. Do you want it? And I went, heck, yeah, I want it. <laughs> Wait, how many pens were they selling from their collection? I think three or four. There was a couple of sailors um, and some independent maker I had never heard of that um, they had. So it really was very fortuitous that the pen you wanted was among the it pens was. that you were selling. Um, and it wasn't even just, you know, some random pen. It was a very hard-to-find sailor, the um, sailor and joyful to uh, what did I say mint, which is pretty highly coveted on account of it's very beautiful uh, and very limited so um, it wasn't just that it was a pen that I wanted. It was a very hard-to-find pen that I wanted. So it was very much the right place at the right time, right circumstances, everything. I think for a lot of us who like to collect pens, and especially those of us who are very um, curated in our collections, often we really enjoy the efforts that we go to for that pen you really, really want. Like if it's too easy, if it's too available, then you don't really want it. It takes a bit of the fun out of it. <laughs> Definitely. There is a lot of fun in the chase. Like um, that's why I like finding pens for other people as well, because it means that I get to have the chase and not kill my bank account until <laughs> somebody else's bank account. <laughs> that reminds me of um, uh, a frequent co-host that we have on the show, uh, Leo Fock in Hong Kong. He is very similar. Like he refuses to collect anything that is too common or that um, he'll be forced to pay too what he thinks is too much money for right now. He'd rather go bargain hunting. He's willing to be very, very patient and wait for a long time for the pen that he wants. Oh, I, I try to be patient, <laughs> but I also have a lot of phone So mm. it was um, a very pretty pen uh, at the Maroos and Pen Fair that I was interested in a few years back that you know, didn't wasn't in Japan, couldn't attend the pen fair. Um, and then this year um, during their pen fair, I had wanted to go to Japan uh, late last year or early this year, but obviously that didn't happen. Um, so I've just been vicariously watching everybody's live feeds on Instagram. Um, and I was watching CY's feed, uh, Tokyo Station Pens, um, and he just kind of went past this cabinet and I was like, hang on, that looks familiar. Uh, and it was the pen that I wanted a few years ago, so I, I made him go back and get it for me. <laughs> Wait, which pen was this? Uh, it was a Maruzin special edition. Um, it's called Botan, uh, which I think means peony, mm-hmm. um, based on my weird translation. But it's um, very similar to the Koki, except for it's kind of a deep and bright at the same time pink, uh, and it's got a silver clip. And is so that on its way or has it arrived? <laughs> Uh, he has gotten it for mm-hmm. me and because um, I'm also getting some other stuff from him, I'm, I'm just well, I'm just sort of collecting, you know, a, a small amount of everything with him and then eventually I'll just be like, you know what, I'll just fuck it and get it. <laughs> yeah. 
Are you mainly interested in modern pens or do you also have some vintage pens in your collection? Um, I had a look at it and I've actually only got two older pens in my collection and they're not even particularly old. They're from the 90s. Um, and that hasn't been a conscious choice on my part because I really do enjoy the look of vintage pens and I love, you know, when I go to a pen posse meetup and somebody's got, you know, a, a really pretty old pen, I'm just like, ah, oh, touch it very lovingly and carefully. But um, as far as my collection goes, the, the two oldest ones are um, a Pilot uh, Custom Legance, which is a discontinued model that um, very similar to the 74. It's a small little cigar-shaped thing, um, but it's made with pretty cellulose or celluloid um, as opposed to the standard, just plain colour pens they do, um, and a old Namiki vanishing point with the facets. You wouldn't have acquired that from Tom May by any chance, would you? I didn't, know. Okay. Um, I did see that he had one, but I, I, the one that I specifically wanted was like the stealth black one okay. um, with the facets because I don't know why. I just really liked how it looked like an old SR2 bomber. Not sure why that appealed to me, but it did. I'm surprised you um, don't have a Mew. I had a, a Mew or a Murex very briefly after the last Melbourne pen show. Um, I sort of, I don't know why I bought it. Like I liked it, but I wasn't in the mood to get one. I just sort of something told me to buy that pen. Um, and it turned out that Silvana wanted it. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I just immediately sold it to her for what I put it for. I'm like, okay, it wasn't for me. It was just telling me to buy it so that it would be there for someone I care about. <laughs> Well, I asked about the faceted vanishing point because I sold um, my green 70s vanishing point to Tom at the 2019 uh, pen show in Sydney. So I was wondering if that might have come around <laughs> full <me>. circle, yeah, <laughs> gone around, you know, different cities. That is one good thing about our small little pen community. You never really give up a pen moving it exactly. a little further away. Right. I haven't, I've never um, rehomed a pen to someone overseas yet. And I, I don't really plan to. I mean, I'd rather keep, I would rather hold on to something, even if I wasn't using it, um, than, you know, risk the journey of sending it to someone overseas. It's just too much of a headache for me. Fair enough. And especially with the uncertainty of shipping at the moment, mm -hmm. like sometimes it's, will get there and then spend forever in a warehouse while all of their domestic shipping works out. Yeah. Or sometimes if air shipping isn't available, it goes on a boat and then it's three months of, is it at the bottom of the ocean right now? Or you know, big fears. Do you agree with the concept of a grail pen and do you have one? Um, I do have a grail pen actually. Um, I, I think the term grail pen is a little overused sometimes. Like uh, people will use it for perhaps a very common pen that just isn't in their price range at the moment. And I, I like that, you know, they're aspiring to something, but to me a grail pen is something that you either can't get for lack of availability or it's, you know, like a $40,000 pen that nobody in their right mind would just, you know, snap their fingers and go, oh, yeah, I, I'll just bought this out of luck. I mean, I'd love to be that person, but wouldn't we all? Um my grail pen is actually until quite recently still available. It's a Platinum 3776 tortoiseshell celluloid Caracusa model. Um, and it was an exclusive to Aesthetic Bay in Singapore. And it was available for the longest time. And I'd just been watching it and, and waiting for our dollar to go mm. down. Just, just 
go down one more cent and this will be fine. And our dollar just wasn't going down. So I kept saving and saving. And by the time I got there, they'd sold the last oh, one. No. And I was just like so shattered because I could have gotten it, mm. but I just hesitated because like I couldn't push myself over over the, the dollar mark. <laughs> That's true. Um, the exchange rate has been very bad against Singaporean dollars. <laughs> um, and my other grail, which I will never get, but I'm happy just knowing that it exists, is the Sankodo 90th anniversary decimos, which I know that Sharon had. Those are the turquoise and the, pink ones? Um, it's There's two of them. One is white, one is pale oh, blue, and they've got yes. um, constellations printed on them. And it's super pretty and it just it's I love the clicky pens and it, it really pleases the space nerd. So I'm just yeah, so pretty. So sad I didn't notice them until it was you know, several years after they'd sold out. <laughs> well, luckily, um, I think Pilot is doing a lot of interesting things with both decimos and vanishing points um, these, these couple of years. So I'm sure they'll come up with something that you really want very soon. There is actually something I really want that will be coming out in May. It's um, from Nagasawa. I'm not sure if it's from one of their stores specifically or from Nagasawa um, in general, but it's a decimo with a bluish teal and green ombre similar to the, mm. the Twilight from 2015, but in a decimo. And it's green and blue and comes in both gold and silver trim. And I am hanging out to get one in silver. <laughs> Do you have a preference between the um, the regular size vanishing point and the decimo? Um, not strictly. I don't own any decimos at the moment, but I, I don't have a problem with um, the grip or the size. And as long as a pen is heavy enough, mm-hmm. I'm fine with a slender pen. Like if it's if it's a very light sort of plastic body pen, I need it to be um, a little fatter just so I can get my grip around it. Um, I, I was discussing this with a friend recently that um, – for like for shorter pens, they've got to be heavier, and for slimmer pens, they've got to be heavier. Otherwise, if they're too light and too small, I just kind of yeet them across the room while I'm writing with them. I feel exactly the same way. <laughs> if a pen is too light, I've mentioned this to Sharon um, when we talk about Pelican pens, which are both light and very very smooth. But I feel like with Pelicans, I feel like I'm holding nothing at all, and the pen's weight in itself is not enough to actually press down hard enough on the paper to write anything. So I, I really don't like the sensation of holding a pelican and writing with it. Um, but that's just a personal preference. Have you tried um, the, the larger models, the 800 and the, the M800 and the M1000? They've got a, a brass distance. They're a little heavier. Yeah, I've, um, um, I used to own an 800, but I found it a little bit back heavy. Um, it is definitely a little bit heavier than the 600. Um, I think the 600 is the ideal size for me and it's very well weighted, but just overall too light, which is sad. Um, but luckily there's so many other pens to collect. <laughs> that's right. And that's one thing I love about pens. You know, if there's something you don't like uh, about a pen specifically, it's not a, a reflection on the pen because for somebody else, that's their perfect, yep. um, you know, their perfect weight or length or girth of a pen. So very cool. I think how we've got all these options. Mm. So have you, at the Melbourne Pen Posses, does each person have like their own little niche? Like um, you're the one with the special edition Japanese pens and Mel's the one with all the capless from different eras and Tom has his vintage and Kevin, like his Lamies. 
it's so funny because it's almost as if we planned it, that we've all got our little different niches. And of course, everybody's niches overlap a little bit, but it's kind of like, you know, if you want to, you know, get some insight or try out a certain pen, but you know who to go to. And if you don't, you can just kind of say, oh, I'm a little bit interested in a vintage Parker and someone's going to talk to Tom. <laughs> Tom's good with troubleshooting with a lot of pens, I find. He is. Um, I think like before we become friends, sorry, Alfie's just gone for a massive leap and landed heavily. <laughs> um, before I'd, I'd gotten to know him or, or anything, um, I'd taken in a, a Lummi 2000 for him to service. And like this thing was giving me nightmares about just what was wrong with it. I could not figure it out for love nor money. And I'm pretty good at figuring out what's wrong with a pen. Like it's, it's, I'm, I'm not a novice, but I just could not get this one done. And he fixed it in like no time at all. And like, you've just got the magic touch. <laughs> this 2000 is also one that's been moved on. It has. Yes. I love it. I think your aesthetic is just pure brilliance, but the grip doesn't work for me. Um, it's, I, I need a little bump towards the nib because the taper, my fingers just slide right down. Yeah. I'm the same way also with the 2000. It's a little bit too um, wide for me at that point where you hold it yeah I think I think I need um pens with like that that little dip in the grip there I was, I was looking at all of my pens before and going yeah they've all got that <laughs> like Kevin's Lummies is it called the style or the um the torpedo shaped pens uh from Lummy let me google that the studio the, the studio, studio that's right every time I see a studio in the store I think oh that's a good looking pen and they come in so many good looking pens and they come in so many great colors like all these metallic colors mm. and every time I hold one I remember oh that's why I can't use it <laughs> yeah, it's like it's very beautiful but a lot of people find um the the shiny metal grip can be difficult mm. even for people who can handle that um tapered grip but for me, it was just the combination of the shiny metal and the taper. It was, I was just looking at, I bought one because I loved the color of it. And I just, I couldn't use it because every time I picked it up, I was like, this is going to wind up on the floor. That's also a pen that could do with a tassel. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so um, let's talk about your taste. What do you look for in a fountain pen? Like, what is it about it that attracts you to it and make you want to buy it? Um. I think, I think appearance is almost universally the first thing that will attract me. Like if if I see a, a very utilitarian pen or a very plain pen, um, I'll need to look a little closer. Like what's the nib like? You know, has it got good reviews? You know, is it something that I can personalise a little bit? Whereas if something is just like an instant standout eye-catcher, I'm already interested. Um, but ultimately I have bought pens that are eye-catchers and they just – didn't mesh with the way I use pens or I wasn't happy with the nib or it just turned out that that initial infatuation was just that. Uh, it caught my eye and therefore I assumed I liked it. Mm-hmm. So um, ultimately um, I think craftsmanship is incredibly important and just how well you find it personally. Um, like I, um, some people say, you know, once you've had pens for a while, you can graduate to you know, a gold nib, whereas I'm like, well, a steel nib that you love is better than a gold nib you hate. So um, it's it's kind of a very personal thing with pens. Like I can see something, I'm pretty sure I like it, but I do need to get it in hand to find out if I like it. And do you set yourself 
um, like a upper limit in terms of the size of your collection? Like some collectors are one in one out, or if you're like Chuck, he really tries to limit himself to only having pens that he will use regularly. The ones that, you know, don't work well, he'll just give away or sell. Um, and I think he, I think he's tried to keep it within about 10 or so. He, maybe he's still at around 10. Um, how about you? Um, I'm a little bit similar to Chuck in the sense that if I'm, if a pen isn't getting used with me, I don't see a point in keeping it, no matter how much I may otherwise love it. Um, not to get into animism or anything, but I kind of feel like the point of a pen is to use it. So um, if it's just sitting with me and I, I love it for everything but using it as a pen, then a picture of it would do just as well, wouldn't it? So um, that's when I'll move on. As far as an upper number goes, um, I hadn't really thought about it, but I think I am trying to stick to around about 20 just because I my maximum currently inked is usually about you know, 10 to 15. I start to panic if it gets above 10 because I'm thinking, oh, God, what am I going to do with all these pens? So it just... It feels like if I have too many pens, I'm going to want to rotate through them all so that they will get used. But then I'll have favourites, which I will want to keep in all the time. So then the rotation doesn't happen. So the reason I try to keep my collection relatively small compared to some some of my friends and, and some beautiful collections I've seen is just that I want to love every single pen that I have. And if that means sacrificing a pen that, I like or a pen that I really wanted and it turns out I'm not that into then that's somebody else's game it's it also makes saying which is your favorite pen the hardest and like the whole point of curating is that they're all my favorite pen <laughs> I think that's a beautiful philosophy and um like you mentioned animism if you think that these items have purpose you know they have spirit then it's sad for a pen to not be used it's like you know a car that's not being driven um, yeah, it's like it was born to this beautiful purpose and as much as we love it we're denying it that <laughs> right it's not being given the opportunity to fulfill its potential <laughs> yeah and I some people think I am absolutely lost my mind when I say things like that but it's just you know I think it's beautiful to do something that you know you were made to do and if for some people, they go, oh, I know my purpose is to do this thing or that thing. And I'm one of those people who never found a purpose. And that doesn't bother me, though, because maybe my purpose is not to have a purpose. And I don't know. I just I like to think that the pens that come into my possession get to have their purpose. Yeah. Maybe your purpose is to help other things and other people to discover theirs. That's me. Max <laughs> <and Abler. laughs> That's true. <laughs> So, um, okay, since you're unwilling to play favourites, um, <laughs> I'm not going to ask you the next question, which is what are the three favourite pens from your collection? We'll just say all 19 of them are your current favourites. They're all my favourite pen, but I will say um, I do have a Pilot Custom 742, which is very common, very boring pen, but I had Bokumondo do a Kawanuri on it and Therefore, it is irreplaceable. Um, so all my other pens, they could, in theory, be replaced, may take heaps and heaps of time and money, but that one literally cannot be replaced. Uh, I was about to say, is there any one pen that's on the chopping block? Well, obviously, it's not that one. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, sometimes I don't like the nib on it. It's one of the, um, the Falcon Flex nibs, mm -hmm. and sometimes I just want a 
bog standard boring nib rather than a flex nib. Well, that's the great thing about it. Is, easy fix. Easy yeah, swap. Yeah, it's a 742. I can just swap out this section. Are the 742 nibs the size 10 or the size 15? The size 10. They're slightly smaller. I had an 823 with the Falcon nib, but I found it was really stiff, mm-hmm. which, and I know that's a very weird thing to say immediately after. Sometimes I don't want a flex nib. But when I do want a flex nib, I want it to flex. Yeah. And I found the size 10 Falcons flex a lot more nicely than the size 15. Yes, that's what I've heard as well. Um, I also have two pens that are in the queue to be sent to Bocumondo uh, via CY, actually, um, in the next couple of months. And they are also, you know, s- s- fairly standard pens. They're a Sailor um, Pro Gear Riallo and a Sailor Profit 1911 Riallo. But I think they're the easiest pens to just make very personalized and really fancy um, through some artwork. Exactly. And she does such an amazing job. Like sometimes, even when it's not inked, I will just pick this pen up and look at it because it's just, it's magical. Just the work she puts into it, she must put a lot of love Mm -hmm. into it because you know how sometimes some things are just elevated by the love somebody puts in it I just look at it and I think this was done beautifully by somebody who cares very deeply about her work yeah that's what I've heard as well yeah I'm really looking forward to it <laughs> oh I'm so excited I hope you share pictures when you do oh I I definitely will take a lot of pictures yeah. <laughs> hopefully I won't drop the pen before I take the pictures <laughs> tie a tassel on it just in case maybe um I've been getting into like mending and sewing and um a couple of days ago I was looking at the section in the book that's about making your own pom-poms so maybe I'll make my own like a sparkly satiny pom-pom and I tie it to my pen that sounds like a good idea actually (laughs) I might do that it would be fun and personal yeah exactly I know that you're a collector and you also like to use your pens since pens in your mind are for using but do you are you ever tempted to buy a pen that's not being used like a pen that maybe is vintage and in no state to be used for me I use everything I have and that extends beyond pens as well I I don't have anything in my house that I don't see as useful and sometimes Useful can mean I like looking at it, but for the most part, I like for things to have a function. So um, my kitchen's pretty small and I don't have any single-use items in it. So, you know, if I've, if I've got a blender, it also has to, you know, like smash up biscuits for a cake or something. I'm, I'm not going to have a blender and a KitchenAid and this and that. Like, So it's as much as I can get used to out of something, I just think that helps with it also helps with not being so cluttered because I I get very personally cluttered if my space is too much which you wouldn't believe looking at my my dining table which is currently a absolute disaster zone of craft supplies (laughs) yeah um, for me a pen is to be used I won't buy one that I'm not intending to use unless I've bought it because I know somebody else wants it and I'm just making sure that it doesn't go to someone not them Um, with the exception of I bought the um, Platinum Meteor Anniversary set, which is, um, I think, 18 of the Platinum Meteor pens, but I actually bought them specifically to split the set up and give to people. So I did buy them not to be used by me, but Mm -hmm. ultimately, hopefully. Someone will use them. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You're sending them off to good homes. Yes. I'm so sorry for that rambling answer. I just... (laughs) 
I should have just left it as no, if I buy a pen, I'm using it. No, I think that's a great answer um, because so many people, they they don't use their pens. You must know that lots of collectors just collect pens for looking at. And there are plenty of Japanese pens, which I'm sure are not intended to be used. You know, those huge um, jumbo epinite Like the emperors that are like the size of your forearm and things like that. Exactly. So even when we're talking about um, Japanese craftsmanship and urushi, sometimes I see the pen um, being thought of as just this template or a platform on which the artist makes their work so it's just like a blank canvas and the fact that it's also a writing instrument is also is almost secondary um yeah i mean i definitely understand that and i i respect that um from the perspective of somebody appreciating art i respect that an artist uses it and i respect that some people just don't want to use their pens they just want them to look at but for me personally Mm -hmm. that's that's not for me if somebody else wants to do it i'm all for it you know you do what makes you happy yeah might make me a little bit sad if you have a pen that I want, <laughs> but um, ultimately it's your collection and no one can tell you how to enjoy it. Well, exactly. That's what I love about um, talking to different collectors because everyone has their own, you know, little quirks yeah. and their tastes and their own philosophies. So um, I'm a little bit of both. I I mostly use all of my pens, but there are some which are too fragile and I just keep because... I like them. I like the materials that they're made of or I like the history that they embody. And I consider myself as, um, you know, like someone who is... You're a custodian. You take care of them. Exactly. I'm a custodian. (laughs) I'm protecting them um, for however many years they're in my collection before I move them on to someone maybe who um, will really like enjoy using them or who will be able to repair them and give them a second lease at life. Um, so that's how I look at a lot of my OMAS and a lot of my vintage pens. In addition to your pen collection, are there other things that you collect or curate or um, start to um, amass creepily? <laughs> <laughs> um, I used to collect uh, miniature perfumes. Um, I had several thousand miniature perfume bottles with the perfume in them. Um, Wait. And it was at the point where I could really <laughs> smell something and go, oh, yes, that Estee Lauder used to be the original version. Wait, 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 um, wait, wait, wait. Miniature perfumes or perfume samples? Like those um, vials? They, they had to be the bottle shaped, just a small version of the retail bottle. Um, so some of those would be as small as two milliliters. Some would go up to, you know, 10 or 15. But um I did have samples just for the fun of having them, but my collection was specifically small versions of the bottles. Oh, my God. Uh, in Australia, I also collect perfumes. <laughs> not, I'm not that particular about um, small bottles, but I find in Australia it's quite difficult to find small bottles. Um, it really is. Even in, like, antique stores and things like that, they're not in high um availability that they're, they're really hard to track down but if you go to japan or you go to europe there are stores where like it's covered in vintage perfumes yeah they just wall to wall all these bottles and they oh it is amazing like i think the best find for miniature perfumes was um i i did a favor for somebody who worked in the general cosmetics area of maya um and I, I hadn't thought about it. I just did them a favour because it was simple enough for me to do so. 
Um, and then the next day they came and they'd raided all of the um, cosmetic counters and found all their miniature bottles and gave them to me. <laughs> oh, it's perfect. And so that was that was my favourite find. That's wonderful. And this, you no longer have this collection? No, I eventually moved it on because um, I, I wasn't going to use all mm. of that perfume. I kept a couple of favourites and bought um, larger bottles of the ones that I would use more often because it's just not very economical to go through tiny bottle after tiny <laughs> bottle. Um, so I moved them on to some other collectors and I was a member of a, um, a fragrance community um, named Base Notes, which was mm. pretty much the FPO of fragrance but worldwide. Yep. Um, and so, yeah, I just every time somebody mentioned, oh, I'm really into this, that, and the other thing, I'd be like, well, have I got a surprise for you? Give me your mailing address. <laughs> it's been a long time since I've logged onto the forum. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just I I guess it just shows that all of my collections are sort of socially based to some mm-hmm. degree, even though you wouldn't really think of pens or perfumes as being social activities. Um, it just occurred to me that the community was what I loved about both of these things. Absolutely. And also the fact that, I don't know, like you, I find that we start to collect a lot of the same things. I also collect perfumes. But um, I find recently I, also, I like to collect things that um, have a lot of, colors like the spectrum and there's a lot of options so um right now more recently I've been buying a lot of thread (laughs) like and yarns for um for darning because I've just been getting into darning and repairs and there's like no end to it there's so much fiber out there there definitely is I love embroidery and embroidering and I have got a massive container of just <laughs> embroidery threads in all different colors arranged by rainbows so that I can find what I want when I want it and uh yes I I agree yes. just colors <laughs> art beauty it's all important and it, I get the same satisfaction out of it as I do like from my ink collection and from swabbing my inks um do you also collect inks or do you just enjoy using them I at one point I did and I would just like every time I saw a bottle I'd like to oh yes I'll get one of those and I'll get it in um but again with the whole using everything it kind of occurred to me that I was never Mm -hmm. going to use all this much so what I tend to do is I collect samples now and I try to get through those and if it's a sample I really love and I'm really sad when it ends then maybe I'll get a bottle but at the moment I have one drawer with all of my inks in it and I get very angry at Angie Lee, our dear oh, friend yes. on FCO, because she's always like, oh, I've just bought a new ink. I'm sending you a sample. And then before I know it, I've got, you know, mail with you know, 30 samples. And I'm like, Angie, my drawer is <laughs> running out of room. <laughs> I, I think, yes, in terms of um, for people like us who like to um, make collections, let's say, um, a mat, like, curate these sorts of collections whenever I get into something new I really have to sort of plan ahead and think how far do I want to get into this like when you talk about embroidery I really feel myself on the like on the verge of dropping into this hole because I know if I let myself you know walk over that line before you before know I, too late. before I know it, I will start having like a craft room. I'll have to have a sewing table. I will have like an entire like table just devoted to this particular hobby, and then I'll never have room in my house for anything. Um, so before I start 
inching towards something new and I start collecting things en masse, I really sometimes have to stop myself. You know, I can do this and no more. I can um, do maybe darning, but I'm not going to knit. If I start knitting, I'll start buying all of this wool and there'll be no end to it. And um, I'll end up having to give away, you know, socks and scarves and everything to everybody. Oh, I wish I had your restraint. I, I jump from hobby to hobby <laughs> like nobody's business. And every time I start, I'm like, all right, well, I'm going to need all of the basics. And then, you know, two seconds later, well, I've mastered the basics and so now I need the advanced stuff. Um, and if I look at my table right now, I can see um, jewellery equipment, an electroplating machine, <laughs> leatherworking gear. Next to that, I've got some paints um, and my embroidery stuff. And that's just my kitchen table. It's, it doesn't even include my computer desk or, yeah, it's a problem. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like I have um, maybe restraint maybe compared to you and maybe Brian who also collects hobbies <laughs> like, you know, their shells on the beach. Um, but don't you find that, um, do you find that you let go of these hobbies over time or uh, like when you lose interest? There is a saturation point at some time um, where I sort of cycle through the hobbies like with embroidery. I would be like stitching an entire piece every day and just, you know, mucking around at night on bits things and then I'll drop it and not touch it for a year. And then every now and then I'll just come back like, oh, okay, that's right. I used to do that. And on the bright side, having left it for so long means that I suck at it. Mm -hmm. So I, I get the learning curve again, which can be fun. It's not always fun. But um, I, I definitely do have the, the problem where my interests drop off which, you know, is, is not so great considering I've just spent $400 on leatherworking tools. So <laughs> here's hoping I actually do something with that. I think that's um, the problem with those hobbies where getting started in them is quite expensive, like upfront. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. That's a really good thing about fountain pens is that you don't have to, like, spend big mm -hmm. to start. You know, you can get a really good pen from Daiso. Like, I have a pen from Daiso that is just this little clear nothing with a teeny tiny nib that I just bought because I was headed to a meeting and I'd forgotten all my pens. So I just grabbed it so I'd have something and I chucked it in my backpack after this meeting and never thought about it. I picked it out four months later and it wrote mm -hmm. like I hadn't just thrown it in the bottom of my backpack for months. So, you know, you can still get a really good experience really cheaply um, and, and accessibly, which is not the same for a lot of hobbies. Are there people in your life, your friends or family who are not fountain pen people and uh, what do they think about your collections? Um, well, my pen friends think my collection is absurdly small and the people who aren't pen friends think that 20 pens is a lot of pens. Um, but a lot of my non-pen friends, I've just, you know, gifted pens like this is yours now and I have a friend who loves to make fun of me for my pen stuff. She calls me a, a giant nerd and I'll be like, ooh, look at this cute pen. And she's like, nerd. And I'm like, okay. Um, but, yeah, I, I just went to the other day, Gigi, how many fountain pens do you have now? And she's like, oh, I don't know, six. I'm like, that's a yep. collection, girl. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's more pens than, like, 95% of the population <laughs> will that's ever right. have. You're a nerd, Gigi. <laughs> But, yeah, so a lot of them I sort of, you know, give pens to. I really want to get my dad into fountain pens because he's got the worst handwriting known to man. 
And I feel like a fountain pen would help with that just because it would make him, you know, think about his writing a bit more, but he's just, he's abjectly will not get into it. Though he did, he did pick up my 70th anniversary, um, lots of a pen and pronounce it the very nicest nib, which I must agree with. <laughs> so he has good taste at least. <laughs> he does. Well, I don't know if I'd say he has good taste, but he did recognize a good nib when faced with one. <laughs> okay. Knowing how uh, carefully you build your collection is there anything that you would do differently if you had to start building it again from the very start? With a yes and no for that. Um, if I was starting my collection again, knowing what I know now, for instance, if you know there'd been some catastrophe and I'd lost everything, um, I would do it differently in that I've got a better idea of what I want and how to acquire what I want. So I'd be much more streamlined and deliberate in starting my collection. Um, but if I was starting again the way I did when I first started my collection, not knowing what I liked, I probably would do it the same, actually. Um, I just went through a massive acquisition phase where I was like, that's pretty, I'll get it. That's cheap, I'll get it. That could be interesting, I'll get it. Um, and it meant that I acquired a lot of pens that weren't for me um, and a lot of pens that in hindsight I really shouldn't have bothered with. But there's really no way to know until you get it in hand and see it for yourself. So... No, if I knew what I knew now, I would do it differently. If I didn't, I would. Yeah, I think for a lot of people, that very rapid acquisition phase is also when you learn the most um, about what it you is, like. Yeah. like. It's very easy to think, you know, oh, I'm fairly certain I like this shape of pen, but it's it's something you really need to get in hand and you don't really think about it until it's something you're holding. Which So for your wallet, having a pen group, it's great because you can just go and, and hold everyone's pen and decide, ah, okay, that group is not for me. This this colour is not what I thought it would be in person. But otherwise, just, you know, I think the rapid acquisition phase is quite common to a lot of fountain pen people and I don't think many of us would say don't do that. I, I think a lot of us go, you know, yeah, it's a bit of a risk to your wallet, but what isn't? I think as long as you accept that during that acquisition phase, a lot of the pens that people recommend you with all the best intentions, they might not work for you. And that's through no fault of the pen or no fault of the other people who think this pen is great. It's just, you know, it's a personal thing. And um, that's all part of the process of learning what you like and what works with your writing style and with your hand. Definitely. Um, So what advice would you give to someone else who is – uh, fairly new to the hobby, um, maybe hasn't written with a lot of pens. What would you say to your friend if she was coming to you and um, saying, how do I get started in this? How should I start to build a collection? If possible, um, my first advice would always be to attend a local meetup or just get together with, with people who have pens so that you can sort of get an idea for a way. It's like, it's, it's very easy to just say, jump into the acquisition phase, but that's very difficult for somebody who doesn't have any idea of where to start. It's kind of like, you know, dropping them in the ocean and saying, pick a fish. <laughs> like, um, well, do you want a big fish? Do you want a little fish? Do you want, you know, a, a fish that also has legs? It's, you know, it's, it, if you've got an idea of what it is that you might be interested in, narrowing that down really help as far as being able to find what you like. Um Obviously, for some people, that's not going to be an option, either because of COVID or just because they're not in a high-density area or city with, with many users. Um, in that case, I'd say ask around for advice and read reviews. Ultimately, understand that almost everything you read is going to be subjective. So 
you know, you, you can't take everything as gospel, but most people are out there to give you advice with the best of intentions. Um, so if if you can stand listening to all of us waffle on about why this pen is the greatest and why we're not a fan of that pen, then by all means ask away because there are very few people who are going to say that's a stupid question. And if they do say that, then their opinion's crap anyway, so don't listen to them. <laughs> I know fountain pen supplies was something that you probably had the idea of starting when you realised that there was this um, niche in the market, this demand that wasn't being met um, by other retailers in Australia. But what was it that really drove you to say, there should be someone doing this? Why shouldn't it be me? That's actually 100% the reasoning. I was saying, somebody should stop this. Somebody should make this easy to get. Somebody should, I'm somebody. <laughs> and so because I'm good at finding things and I happen to like building websites, I thought, you know what, I'm going to be the somebody. And that's literally the whole thing. Like some people want to go, oh, what was your defining moment? It's literally just it needed to happen. I'm going to be the somebody who did it. Well, what really surprises me, um, knowing that you really only bought your first fountain pen in 2018, so there was this very short gap between um, your first pen and starting this business, um, selling to other members in the pen community. Um, did you do any like research or did you just sort of ask around? Is there a demand? Uh, does anyone want this? Um, I'm very much a feet first kind of person. Like I just jump in and I really should think about the consequences way in advance, but it was more a thing of I know that, these things are very handy. I know that a lot of us will need these things. I know that none of us wants to pay $18 shipping from the US. So it's just, I mean, in hindsight, I did it really foolishly. I didn't do any market research. I, I asked, you know, a couple of close friends, would they be interested? And, of course, you don't ask your close friends that because they're going to support you because they're friends. Um, and I just kind of went, all right, well, these are the things that I needed when I was starting my fountain pen journey. So I'll start with these. And then, so that's why it started like with cleaning supplies and brass gems and micromesh. And then it sort of went, well, people like, you know, to have um, writing sheets to, you know, line up their writing on blank pages. Um, people like to have, you know, ink syringes. And they were like, well, my background in science means I can easily acquire these things. So it just sort of went from, I don't know, just kind of thinking, what did I need? What are people saying they need? What can I actually provide? And it all just kind of went from there. Yeah, because I remember when I was getting into the hobby in 2015, there was nowhere to buy this stuff. Like silicone grease, brass shims, it was all imported from the US. Um, I think James Finnis at some point stocked quite a lot of these various um, supplies, but he was often out of stock. And um, I think you went to a store more for the inks and um, the pens than for those sorts of supplies. So when you started your store, I was thinking, if I didn't already have all these things, I would definitely get um, that whole kit and everything else. Um, so talk about how you've expanded on what's been offered on fountain pen supplies. Now I think you sell um, ink uh, what do you call ink discovery, ink subscription boxes and a lot of other things? Yep. Um, well, one of the major things in deciding what I would stock in the first place was that I didn't want to be a competitor 
to other stores, like you say, um, James Finnis and Pensive Pens and, and Pole Prediction, um, book binders and standard bindery when they were still existing. Um, I, I very much think of us as a community rather than as a series of competitors. So um, it was if, if I knew that somebody else stopped something, it's I wouldn't go out of my way to stock it. There were some things that ultimately I was going to have to stock just on account of I needed it for my kits, things like um, silicon grease and the ink sample vials. But I also made a point that I didn't want to undercut anybody because I feel like if to really have choice um, in a capitalist society, it's it's got to be about your personal choice, not what's being driven by the amount you can get for a dollar. And the race to the bottom you know, doesn't benefit anybody. So if you know, if I saw that you know, James is selling um, ink sample vials for this much, then I would sell them for that much too because I would rather somebody go, oh, I want to buy this from James. I might as well get that from him as well than to say, oh, well, Max is selling it cheaper, so I'll go there. Mm-hmm. So it was very much a conscious decision that I didn't want to inconvenience other retailers because we're a small market mm-hmm. and we need everyone. <laughs> um, as far as I'm trying to remember how um, the progression of my products went, um, I remember I, as you would know from my Instagram handle, Crabo Crew, I'm a big fan of crabs. <laughs> so those weightlifting crab um, um, pen holders, I was going to say paperweights, but they're light as they do not weight anything down. <laughs> um, that was something that was going to happen. I had a lot of trouble keeping them in stock. Um, I have one. It's on my bookshelf I, right I, now. <laughs> Yay! Go Crabbo! Um, so, yeah, it was, it was, those were incredibly popular. I eventually found that um, there are a lot of counterfeit crabs being sold, which sounds like a strange thing to mention, but the artist, um, he goes by the name Anatol, he made the sculpture and he hand-paints all of them. So they're all, you know, very individual, very, very special pieces, Um and some company uh, stole his mould and is like mass producing them and selling them on eBay and AliExpress and all that. So people can get them cheaply, but it's not the real thing. And I did buy um, a couple of the fakes to compare with the real thing. They're also not as good as the real thing. <laughs> so um, people always ask me, when are you going to restock the crabs? And I'm not going to restock them unless I buy them directly from Arnatol because, you know, it has to be the real thing supporting people who profit up other people's work and, and stealing their designs is just not cool. It doesn't breed innovation yep. and it's really unfair to the artists. So I, I will be getting them in when Japan Post reopens um, the, the pathway to Australia. At the moment, the only way to get them is via DHL and because they do the volumetric shipping, tiny little lightweight crabs <laughs> is a nightmare to ship. So I, I feel like the price I had them at was was borderline. Like that was the cost for me to get them in, the cost to to ship them, and then a tiny bit of profit to make sure that I could you know, continue to get them in. Um, and if I if I DHL'd them in, I'd have to probably double the price. And they were already like there's no way you'd pay more than that. Yeah. So I'm just not getting them in until I can get them in at a reasonable price for people, and because that is a large part of what I do things should be reasonably priced yeah I think that's a great philosophy (laughs) I mean like like we like we say that shipping is a huge thing nobody wants to pay three dollars for a brush and then eighteen dollars for shipping 
well, I could charge $21 for a brass tube with free shipping. That doesn't make it a good deal. Mm -hmm. The only value you'd be getting is getting it faster than from overseas. But that's just, that's just not right. (laughs) So yeah, a lot of my products are just, what can I get? What can I get ethically and cheaply? And what do people want? Mm -hmm. So that's kind of my whole thing. Um, and, And sort of like looking at my, I mentioned earlier that I have a cupboard filled with the stuff that's literally what it is it's just a cupboard of stuff <laughs> so I'm looking at the stuff and I'm like the syringes were probably the weirdest thing for me to get in because they come in like this giant bag and it looks ridiculous and when it gets delivered the mailman kind of looks at me like I you need a thousand syringes and I'm like, one, I don't owe you an explanation. <laughs> and two, don't try and stick yourself with these needles, okay? They are very thick. They will hurt a lot. <laughs> Things like that, it's just you can go to a pharmacy and ask for syringes and most pharmacies will give them to you for free um, as part of like harm reduction strategies because uh, they'll assume it's for drug use. But they will be very small mm-hmm. with a very tiny needle. So they're not great as far as filling your pens go. But if you do want free things, you, you can get them that way. Um, I think the pen flush became a big one because liquid is a pain in the butt to ship from overseas. It's heavy. Some carriers won't take it. And so pen flush became a thing for me, which was difficult because in order to buy the quality and quantity of ammonia to make um, the pen flush, I had to get a permit for that. Um, You'll sometimes see recommendations um, from people to use just ammonia that you buy from the supermarket in the cleaning section. Mm -hmm. That advice is fine if you live in the United States or Europe where you can actually buy high-quality ammonia, but in Australia we've only got cloudy ammonia and that's way too soapy. It'll it'll just make your feed a fire hose for the next 10,000 years. I've never used a pen flush uh, because um, I don't like particularly wet nibs. Um, and I don't use like very troublesome inks. So I've always wondered what they actually do. Well, to be perfectly honest with you, and as somebody who sells pen flush, you very rarely need it. Um, <laughs> I, I would be happy not to sell it, honestly, but some people really do want it. 99% of the time, just, you know, some cold or lukewarm water will do what you need. But um, if you like super sheeny inks, sometimes you can flush your nib for 10,000 years and there will still be ink coming out of it just because of how saturated it is. Pen flush is quite good at moving the, the dye from those inks. So sometimes that can be helpful. Or if you've picked up a secondhand pen where ink has dried in it and mm. you need to like loosen it up and just stand in water flush isn't doing it. But other than that, I think pen flush can be a bit of overkill. And honestly, you don't really need it. Most of the time, just water will do. <laughs> when I first started, I bought a tiny little bottle of pen flush, like maybe 100 milliliters. And I've still got 95% of it years later just because that's how unnecessary it ultimately is. Well, I think I'd feel better if I had some just in case I run into trouble, maybe like with a glittery ink or um, with a piston that was getting stained. But most of the time I don't use a lot of piston-filled pens and I don't use any glittery or staining inks. Um, I try to avoid troublesome um, inks like that. So... Me too. I do sell the sample size of the pen flush, which it's some people, especially beginners, might go five milliliters of pen flush. What am (laughs) I going to do with that? And like, if you if you very rarely use troublesome inks, five milliliters will last you quite a long time. Tell me about your ink 
fixed subscription boxes um, because every time I look at your Instagram, I think. Which I have. <laughs> every look, every time I look at the Instagram for your store, and I see your beautifully curated um, subscription boxes, I think, how much time does Max spend in acquiring all of these inks? Some of which I've never heard about, and some which I don't think have ever been sold outside of Taiwan or Japan or China. That's the finder in me. Um, <laughs> with the um, the boxes. Sometimes the idea for the theme would come first. So I'd be like, um, I don't know, the, the theme is tea. So I'll find tea themed inks. And then I would like get a couple of the, the usual suspects. Um, but also I think it's quite boring to, to just get a box of, you know, inks that you've heard of and inks that you may already have. So I try to, you know, expand a little bit and I look in markets that, you know, maybe a beginner wouldn't know to look in. Um, and things like that and it means that I can find some some interesting brands that people may not have heard of and sometimes some very interesting inks Um, other times the inks will come first and then I'll build um, a theme around it like with um, the Sydney 2018 pen show Sharon had brought over the bellflower inks from um, the Singapore pen show that Yachin style Mm -hmm. had made Um, I didn't have a theme in mind I just knew that was a really interesting ink that most people would not have heard of or have gotten. So I just rushed in, grabbed some bottles, and I'm like, all right, I'll think of the theme later. You were the first um, visitor to our table that day. I was. I was just like, I I know that on social media I'd friend, I would elbow people out of the way. I will tackle people to get to this ink. I didn't have to, but as soon as I got in the door, I was like, zoom, I am going straight here for some ink. Yeah, and you grab like three bottles. <laughs> I did. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> so you're currently on a break with the subscription boxes. Um, do you have any plans on when you'll get back into it? I don't have plans on when. Um, initially, I had to start ramping it down because of COVID. Just it became impossible to get things from overseas. Yeah. Um, and pretty much anything we can get locally has either already been in the box or is something that everybody has because it's, you know, the kind of ink that, you know, of course you've got. Why wouldn't you have that ink? Mm-hmm. Um, and things are starting to lighten up now, which is amazing, um, but I am not in the best of health at the moment and I'm expecting to have surgery in the next few weeks. So I really don't want to start up subscriptions and then go, oh, hey, guys, going to take a couple weeks break. Yep. You know, just hang tight. I'm not running off with your money. It's, it's very important to me not to be able to promise something I can't mm-hmm. deliver. So it's, it is on hold. It's not discontinued. It's just on hold. Completely understandable. And now that we're putting it out there, I think there'll be even more anticipation for when you <laughs> eventually return with the subscription boxes. I mean, I, I have a book with like lists of potential boxes. So there are ideas. Like, I mean, I, I think I've shown my my ink swatch journals on Instagram just because I'm very, very fond of swatching inks. But like I'll put an ink in my journal and I'll think, hmm, this would be a great ink for a beach theme. And so I'll swab it in, in a, a page with, you know, beach written on top. And then so I've got this book that just sort of goes, you know, it's got a list of the inks that I would put in a particular theme and I can refer to that. So I'm not out of ideas. Um, I'm just in limbo as far as being able mm-hmm. to provide the ideas. No, I, I, I really like looking at 
the collections that you bring together. I think it's um, a very creative way of accessing different types of inks. And I enjoy trying to, um, I enjoy looking at these themes and these palettes that you bring together, which are surprising. And it reminds me of, you know, Mountain of Ink. Um, Oh, I love the palettes that she does. Exactly what I was thinking of. Yes. (laughs) I think it's such a, it's a creative and really artistic um, way of applying yourself to this thing that you love. Um, It's almost like painting, you know, you're painting with inks in this singular way you know you're not drawing a picture but you're drawing a collection together you're curating something for someone else um, to enjoy and think about I am a terrible artist so (laughs) that is like the best possible outcome for me and if you are curious to see how some of these palettes have been turned into artworks um, I would recommend checking out pen and ink cap on Instagram she has taken some of the ink fix palettes and just created the most beautiful works of art I just I mean I love looking mm-hmm. at her art just because it's amazing her lettering is flawless but I also like going oh I know yeah. that, ink. I know that ink. <laughs> isn't it great to think that you may have um, inspired um, that sort of creativity I don't think I inspired it but I think <laughs> you've, enabled, so, you, you've yeah, enabled I it my, my ego can do that <laughs> but yeah Lee is just an incredible artist and I really recommend that everyone go look at her stuff wonderful uh, that's pen and ink. Pen and ink cap. Pen and ink cap on Instagram. So, in addition to all the shipping woes, um, are there any other particular challenges that you face as a small retailer in Australia, particularly in the wake of the pandemic or during the pandemic? Um, obviously, I can't speak for all retailers, um, and I have quite a unique setup. I think in that I'm my only employee which is very weird because I'm always referring to fountain pen supplies as we. I'm like, we hope that you enjoy this. Royal we. Yeah, the royal we. I I think it's like I mentally think of fountain pen supplies, the business, as like a separate entity as well as me. I I, I don't know. I'm just trying to justify my my weird royal we there. Um, So I don't have to worry about keeping staff in a job or whether or not anyone gets paid. Because um, most of the time I don't get paid. Any any money that comes in goes straight back into getting stock and moving it out. Um, my advertising costs are super low because I'm lazy, largely. <laughs> I mean, I, I could spend more on advertising, but um, at the moment, because I haven't got a lot to provide, I don't want to. Um, but yeah, it's it's mostly, as far as I can see, a lot of supply issues. Like I wrote down some notes because I was like, I've got a lot to say about this and I'm going to forget it all. But um, like for us generally, even outside of pandemic times, stock availability is an issue because Australia is a small market and the fountain pen community within Australia is an even smaller still market. So a lot of manufacturers won't particularly bother to, you know, make the effort of getting their product to us, training us in their product and um, then distributing it because, you know, they could spend all that money to get a couple of hundred sales in Australia when that same amount of effort would get you know, several thousand mm-hmm. sales in the United States or in Asia or in Europe. So a lot of the time we just can't get in the things that people are interested in um, and so we don't get a lot of um, 
not so much exclusive items because obviously they're exclusive to their retailers and their countries, like the North American Sailor exclusives and the 10 trillion beautiful Japan exclusives that we all desire. Um, and that also ties into price competitiveness as an issue because we we don't really have the ability to get in giant bulk orders of things. I mean, we could, but then we'd have a lot of stock that's not really going to get moved, um, which is not so great from a business perspective. And ultimately that then makes things more difficult for us to, to move on for our customers because we've still got a lot of dead stock we can't deal with. Um, like I say, it's not so much of an issue for me because most of my stock is like single items that are going to be perennially useful or kits that I've assembled myself. So um, it's that's not so much an issue. But I do sometimes, you know, see requests to other retailers like, oh, can you get in this? When are you going to get in this? And I kind of think I'm sure they'd love to, but yeah. it's going to be a pain in the ass and it's going to be very difficult for them. And it might end up costing like you as more. Far as, oh, you when I say you as a customer. Um, Yeah, and, like, as a customer, I know nobody wants to pay more, but um, sometimes you kind of have to weigh up whether or not the price difference um, justifies your choice as a consumer. Like, obviously, you'll sometimes see things like Pelican is famous for their inconsistent pricing, how it's, you know, several hundred dollars more expensive in Australia than in Europe. And that's not a retailer thing. That's a Pelican thing. Um, But with some retailers, you know, they do have to cover their costs. You know, they've got overheads, they've got staff costs, they've got insurance, sometimes rental for a brick and mortar store. And if it's something like Pelican where it's several hundred dollars cheaper overseas, then okay, yeah, that's understandable. You're going to want to shop overseas instead of local. But if it comes down to like, you know, 20 or $30, you kind of need to ask yourself, is that, $20 $20 or $30 saving worth it to you to maybe not have a local retailer in the future. Yeah. And obviously $20 or $30 isn't going to make or break a retailer, yeah. but when you multiply that by all their customers, by all their products, it kind of, yes, you do pay a premium to shop local, but it's also keeping the local shops in business to be there to serve you. Again, not so much a, a problem for me not actually selling pens or inks or anything, but it's something that I try to be conscious of when I'm shopping. Yes, exactly. Um, I know we always say shop locally, but sometimes um, I'm I'm thinking of specific um, pen retailers. Sometimes I, I really do feel the prices are sometimes just egregious and there really are. Um, oh, definitely. Sometimes it definitely is. I'm not defending yeah. um, retailers on that front. But when it's when it's literally just, you know, something that you can see is because they had to get it from overseas, et cetera, then it's like, okay, you know, and, and for some people, $20 or $30 is a lot. Um, let's, let's not, you know, forget that not a lot of people have you know, a lot of disposable income and sometimes buying a pen is like, a luxury purchase that they will, you know, it's their present for the whole year. And on an individual perspective, no, you shouldn't feel bad for trying to save that little bit of money. But just overall and across the general community, you do have to think about it as are you investing in your community with the $30 you would be saving? Yeah. Um, I really appreciate the thoughtfulness of your answers. And you're obviously thinking from both the perspective of yourself as a very considerate consumer, but also you bring to it this perspective of also um, being a retailer and 
being able to provide value added to the people that you're selling to. And um, I think there's definitely ways that retailers in Australia can do both. You know, they can um, be successful and also bring value to your customers. And I also support um, paying a slight premium in order to help local business um, to keep that supplier locally, um, to keep them afloat, to make sure that they're there to support our local communities and also to make sure that um, we register as a market, you know, to these big brands because exactly we can shop overseas but the big brands are going to look and go well the sales are overseas right. they don't care if it ultimately ends in australia exactly it's only through supporting those local suppliers and distributors that we actually start to build a considerable um market um and maybe start to get in more stuff because having watched the growth in different types of retailers and what they're able to get from Asia specifically. Um, it's just grown by leaps and bounds in the last four or five years. You know, um, a lot of um, very limited inks now we can maybe get in small batches. Um, there are some suppliers who are able to stock from Japan directly. Even brands like Sailor, who I think some years ago only had maybe one or two distributors in Australia, now you can find them at a bunch of different stores. And their range um, that they bring into Australia is also growing. So um, I think that's the development that everyone would like. Even if you have to pay a little bit more, being able to see it at your local retailer, to be able to get it shipped to you from someone locally, that's definitely worth that premium to most people. Definitely. And sometimes it, you, if it helps, you can sometimes think of it as a rush fee. You know, how long is it going to take to get to you from overseas versus you can have it within a day or two buying it locally? Yeah. So if you think of it as like, you know, your overseas DHL fee, then it's also a bigger jump. <laughs> Exactly. And then you don't have the uncertainty of having to wonder whether you have to pay GST on it <laughs> as well. Oh, yes. I had my, my first um, over $1,000 purchase um, late last year. I was very, very grateful that it got in through um, you know, all the, the COVID transport difficulties. But oh my gosh, that was a big sting. Yeah. It's not even just the GST, it's the $80 the or so yes, and, yeah. for processing it. I mean, goodness. Oh. I know, I got into the wrong line of work. <laughs> I mean, they're already charging you an extra fee because um, of the cost of, is it fuel and also a markup because of COVID? Now they're having to charge you all this Yeah, cost. there's a fuel surcharge, <laughs> yeah. a how dare you take up airplane space that we could have been using for passengers that we can't even take surcharge <laughs> and things like that. One of the things that I had shipped over was um, my first Nakaya and I got stung an extra fee because the Polonia box, um, they were like, it's wood. That's a restricted item. We need to double, triple inspect that. Really? Like, it's a pen case. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Wait, was this DHL or FedEx? This was through Australia Post. I used um, an Australia oh. Post order in the United States and I was like, mm-hmm. right, you were convenient because you can go straight to my PO box from overseas instead of having to come to my door but oh you're so cheeky (laughs) just you know putting in all these little extra things I'm like if I hadn't specified that it was a wooden box that it was in would you have just assumed it was plastic and let it through probably (laughs) 
plan? I mean, it's a consumer good. What's it going to have in it? Well, thank you so much. Um, I've loved the fact that you're able to be so frank about your business. Um, And I really like listening to your thought process about how you operate your business ethically and in a way that kind of really feeds into what I see your role as um, or self-described role in the community, which is to um, enable other people, you know, help them discover new things as a way of ending um, our episodes, we always ask our hosts and guests for one recommendation. Um, and it usually is something that's not fountain pen related, but it's an opportunity for them to bring attention to something that they're enjoying or someone's work who they really like. So what would your recommendation be? You know, I spent all day thinking about this and my brain has just instantly gone blank now that you mentioned it because of course it did. But I mean, come on, brain, do a thing. Can I can I recommend Bread Top? Like they've got this cake that I absolutely adore. Bread Top, the Asian bakery. Yeah. Yes. All right. If you give me a minute, I'll find the name of this cake because I love it and it's absolutely insane good. Like I can't eat very much. I have a very small stomach capacity, but um, I can eat an entire one of these cakes. So that's how good these cakes are. So, is it one of the custody ones or one of the savory was, ones? It's coconut mango mousse <gasps> cake. Oh, that sounds very dangerous if you're lactose intolerant. <laughs> All right. So um, just to actually do it in a clip compatible manner, um, I recommend the coconut mango mousse cake from Breadtop, the bakery, because it is so light and so fluffy and so delicious. You can eat an entire one all by yourself. And I have, and I will. I've never had that particular cake from Bread Talk, but I'll have to try it. Treat yourself. Oh my goodness. Does it have a lot of custard or cream? I will bring up the description for you. It is layers of coconut mousse, coconut mango panna cotta, sponge cake, and almond meringue. Well, mango and coconut are, that's one of my favorite flavor combinations. Isn't it the best? It's just amazing. Um, and It's so light and fluffy. <laughs> So I would probably put it more on the meringue or panna cotta sort mm-hmm. of side of things rather than a, a heavy sort of cake. Like it is a very light cake. My recommendation is something that you actually reminded me of um, when you were talking about the fake crabs, the counterfeit crabs, counterfeit crabs um, the originals by Anatole in Japan. Is that right? Yes. Um, because Oh, can I recommend him? You, yes. can, you can buy directly from him at anatol.com. And unfortunately, Japan Post will not be shipping to Australia right now. But if you have a black ship forwarding address or something like that, he can definitely ship it to you to then move to yourself. How do you spell that? Anatol? Yes. Or, yeah, Anatol. A-H-N-I-T-O-L. So my recommendation inspired by that story, something that I was watching last night, and it's a video by the historian and she's she's a fashion historian and her name is Bernadette Banner. She's on YouTube. And she is someone who studies um, historical clothing and then makes them for herself. So she made this very beautiful crimson medieval gown that she based on historical patterns. 
And um, she found that there were these retailers on fast fashion stores that were using her photograph to sell a very cheap, poorly made knockoff. And so um, as a content creator, she scented blood and she saw an opportunity (laughs) to create great content. So she bought this knockoff dress of the dress that she made and then did a video comparing the two. So I recommend her video, uh, Roasting This Knockoff. <laughs> it's so much fun. Um, the video is called Buying a Knockoff of My Own Dress, an Educated Roast, Actual Fire Used for Scientific Purposes. And she does actually set part of the knockoff dress on fire to prove that it's mostly synthetic polyester. That would have been nice and cathartic for her too. <laughs> I'm sure it was. Um, but I, I think it's a great video because it's really fun to watch someone like roast so articulately something that they don't like, but also because um, she talks very she talks very knowledgeably and very articulately on the problem of um, big companies creating counterfeits of creations by small scale um, makers and artists and as someone um, who doesn't actually sell what she makes, she's able to be quite um, humorous about it. Like it's not actually taking away from her profit, but she obviously cares a lot about um, ethical manufacture and slow fashion and really valuing craftsmanship and the work of all these people who created the originals. Um, It's a really fun video, but it also Um, brings a lot of depth to quite a sensitive topic because no one wants to, you know, pay. Most people can't afford to pay like $1,500 for this really beautiful dress, which is what her dress would actually cost if you paid for all the materials and pay for the labor that she put into it. But at the same time, you don't want to send like $50 on a dress that's being made under like sweatshop conditions and yeah. um, being marketed on the basis of something that's unrealistic, you know? Um, so she, I think she handles that issue pretty deftly and um, a really good channel. And that's one of the highlights of her channel. So I recommend you check her out. Her name is Bernadette Banner and she's also on Instagram. I'm going to look that up. Yeah. I'll send you the link afterwards. Ah, thank you. So thank you so much, Max, again, um, for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. <laughs> I really enjoyed talking to you. And I hope you'll come back at some point. Maybe I'll catch you at one of the shows. I would love to. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. Hopefully. Come on. Come on, 2021. <laughs> Past and future episodes of this podcast can be found at thenipsection.com and wherever you listen to podcasts. Hop onto Apple Podcasts, rate us, review us, recommend us to your friends. Want to share your thoughts, suggestions, feedback? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at thenibsection at gmail.com. You can also comment at us on the Nib Section Facebook page or at the Nib Section on Twitter and Instagram. The Nib Section is the official podcast of Fountain Pens Oceania. Our producer this episode was Diana Dye. Recording and editing was done by Diana Dye. Our music was composed by Michael Pierce. Our logo was designed by Will H. Smith with artwork by Melissa Graff. Thanks for listening.